Conversations. Hello, this is Darvel here and this is Med Conversations you're listening to. I'm joined by Rebecca. Hello everyone. Today we're talking about COPD. Alright, let's get into it. What would you define COPD as if you were the Global Initiative for Obstructive Lung Disease, GOLD? Well, hypothetically, um, if I were them, I'd probably say it's a common and preventable disease is characterised by airflow limitation that's usually progressive and associated with an enhanced chronic inflammatory response in the airways and the lung to noxious particles or gases. Exacerbations and comorbidities contribute to the overall severity in individual patients. You are a very unnecessarily verbose hypothetical committee. Three salient points there. Really two, I think. Airflow limitation and progressive are the two key points there. And chronic inflammation is another one. That more refers to the pathophysiology. But if you're looking at a patient and you're like, is this COPD? Does it, has the GP made the right diagnosis? Or have they just called it COPD because it's an old person that's short of breath? Do they have actual limitation, which is shown in spirometry? And is it progressive? Is it getting worse over time? So there are three main subtypes of COPD. There's chronic bronchitis, emphysema, and chronic obstructive asthma. So if we go to the first one, chronic bronchitis. The blue bloaters. So how come I don't have chronic bronchitis? I definitely have a cough for more than three months of every year. So the the main definition is chronic productive cough for three months for two successive years, which having seen it in action, I know that you've got. You don't have COPD PD though because other causes have to have been excluded and Although the cough might precede airflow limitation, there has to be airflow limitation. Mm. So in a patient who doesn't have airflow limitation, they don't have COPD. Mm. So that's the first subtype. Chronic bronchitis, which is a productive cough for three months for two successive years with airflow limitation. Then you've got emphysema, the pink puffers. So that's the defined by airspace enlargement distal to the terminal bronchioles without a significant component of fibrosis. So these are the pink puffers. Yeah, Uh, but basically your lung walls have just broken down and you've got these big spaces. Two main types, proximal asinar, which mean close to the terminal bronchioles. And if you can imagine someone's inhaling something, it's going to get off at the first stop it can to cause some damage. So people with uh, smoking, with smoking as if it's a disease, or coal workers' pneumoconiosis, which is another thing that people inhale and damages their lung, they get proximal asthma. And if, so, if you've got pan-asthma, so all the uh, terminal bronchioles are affected and all the alveoli are affected, um, what, what kind of condition does that make you think of? What kind of pathophysiology does that make you think of? Well, I'm thinking that it's, it's less about the environment and probably something that comes more from internally. So alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Mm. It can actually also be seen in smokers, though. Yeah, it's important to remember okay. if they're real chain smokers. Mm. So, so that was emphysema, the second one. We've talked about chronic bronchitis, emphysema, which could be proximal asana or pan asana. Mm. I said there were three subtypes. What was the last subtype again, Darvor? So chronic obstructive asthma is the last one. So that's different to normal asthma because it's not completely reversible uh, with um, kind of beta agonists. Not kind of bit agonists, actual bit agonists. <laughs> okay, moving on to risk factors. So obviously the most important risk factor is smoking. This is why you always need to ask about it on history. Um, and the the way you ask about it, of course, is number of pack years. So a pack per day 
for a year, that's one pack year. And if someone has half a pack for two years, that's also one pack year. It's just kind of like a rough estimation. I'm sure our wise and listeners are familiar with this idea. <laughs> um, so, so interestingly about, or probably less interestingly, more obviously, a lot of people who have COPD also have a smoking history. The number sits at somewhere around 80%. The government is technically correct when it says every cigarette is uh, doing you damage because almost all smokers will have measurable reduction in lung function. But how much you need to smoke to develop full-blown COPD is very variable based on their individual genetics, I guess. But in the absence of a predisposition, some other kind of lung problem, smoking less than 10 to 15 pack years, so that's one pack a day for 10 to 15 years, that's a lot of cigarettes, (laughs) is unlikely to result in COPD. Mm. So know your safe points and Mm. uh, stop before you get there. You'll be fine. (laughs) I've always thought that uh, government advertisements should target COPD more than they do lung cancer. Mm. I guess cancer is scary in the public eye, but to me the idea of just slowly suffocating to death is a much better incentive to quit smoking, especially when you're guaranteed to get it if you smoke enough. If only photos of COPD patients looked gorier. I reckon they do. End of the bed COPD patient looks pretty gory to me. A gold star history for risk factors. We won't just ask about smoking, though. What other stuff will you talk about with the patient? So there's also environmental or organic exposures. So we, we talked about um, coal miners' pneumoconiosis. Mm. Um, then there's the genetic component. So the best-known one we've also mentioned already Alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. It is a polygenic disease, though, so it doesn't have like a clear pattern of inheritance like an X-linked disease or something. So moving on to the history of presenting complaint of your admission. So someone comes in with smells like COPD. What other questions do you actually have to ask them? Beyond sniffing. Um, so, so I guess there's a triad. Yes. So in the triad... There's obviously shortness of breath, um, cough, and sputum production. So if we take each of these one at a time, firstly, the shortness of breath, the dyspnea, that usually presents as exertional dyspnea first. And being progressive, which we said is part of the definition of COPD, it starts off as exertional dyspnea and then it becomes at rest. Um, Then the cough, which also gets worse with time, and sputum production. So how much sputum are we looking at, Darwin? So no more than 60 mils a day. If they're producing copious amounts, you need to start thinking bronchiectasis. It's usually mucoid, but it becomes purulent, so green or yellow, during exacerbations. And that's a key question to ask about if that's what you're worried about. So in terms of time course, it is a progressive disease. That was part of that verbose committee's uh, definition of the disease. But it can also be intermittent, particularly if people are sometimes exerting themselves more than others and they're having exacerbations. It might not be a clear gradual decline. So time to examine the patients. What are you going to see in someone with early COPD back? So early COPD can be quite subtle with just a normal expiration, um, but the expiration could also be prolonged. And there tends to be a wheeze, which may only come out on forced expiration. So Mm. you actually need to really actively look for this. Then with your moderate COPD, you might get crackles at the lung bases, which is where you get those classic gen med quandaries. Is this fluid overload or is this COPD or is this pneumonia? So auscultation doesn't necessarily help, but you might hear a wheeze as well, which might prompt you to write up some salbutamol. 
decreased breath sounds as well. And if you're into percussing your patients, it might be increased in resonance. Um, just a quick note on the wheeze. You have to also remember that every wheeze is not COPD and it could also be a cardiac wheeze. So that's also not particularly specific. <laughs> True. You just can't win. Anyway, so that's early COPD, moderate COPD. Now, with end-stage COPD, this is a lot more obvious. So this is the gory stuff that should be on uh, ads, in my opinion. When you just walk into the room and they've got oxygen next to their bed, they've got purse-lip breathing, they're using accessory muscles. They're blue. They're, yeah, cyanose is the technical word for it. Um, they're trembling because they've got so much asterixis. They've got an enlarged, tender liver. Which you can see from the end of the bed. You can. I've picked up asterisks from the end of the bed. Absolutely. Uh, the liver, though? Oh, the liver, no. <laughs> I'm not that good. And uh, barrel-shaped chest is the other classic one. And they also, they just look really sick. Mm. All right, so in terms of bloods, what would you order? What would be useful? Yeah, so moving on to investigations now. I think what, what you're looking for in investigations is both whether there are other differentials that might be causing this presentation and how bad is this? or what is causing the COPD. So if we start off with other differentials, anemia is another differential which can also contribute to dyspnea. Um, heart failure, you might want to do a BNP. B-natriuretic peptide. B-natriuretic peptide. Which we don't offer at our hospital, but we definitely should. In terms of looking for causes, it's worth um, investigating for alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency and then looking at severity Doing an arterial blood gas or a v- VBG, which actually studies show is just as good. Controversial area. The respiratory physicians do not agree. And emergency physicians are pretty keen on mm. just sticking with the VBG. But there have actually been some big studies done recently that show if you adjust the VBG, there's about a 90% accuracy um, in the pH and the CO, CO2 compared with an mm. ABG. And the SAT machine is fine in assessing the oxygenation. That's no, so, satisfying to do. Yeah, so the other one is um, just having a look at the bicarbonate to see if there's a compensatory metabolic alkalosis process going on. So where the money really is in COPD investigation, what you really need to do to make the diagnosis is a spirometry or pulmonary function tests. So the important thing with that is don't order it while the patient is currently in an exacerbation. You need to order it when the patient's no longer... Um, sick. Mm. Which can mean that you send people off with like a full regime of COPD treatment without actually having confirmed the diagnosis. I've certainly done that before. So what do you see on spirometry? What's the most important uh, thing to look at? Obstruction or restriction? You see obstruction and the thing that differentiates it from asthma is that there's either no reversal or there can be partial reversal with bronchodilators. What's the one number you need to remember when you look at a PFT, pulmonary function test, and you're thinking about COPD? So you're, think- you're looking at the FER, which is the FEV1 on FVC ratio, mm. and the number is 0.7. So less than 0.7, that's a diagnosis of COPD. Or, or- obstructive lung disease. Yeah, that's true. Uh, or alternatively, less than 80% of the predicted FEV1. And this is a really interesting one that respiratory physicians are very keen to point out, um, that that you really do need to look at both of these numbers because sometimes somebody looks like they have a normal FER but have a quite quite significantly reduced 
predicted FEV1. And that's because they could have a reduced FEC as well, because COPD can have a restricted pat- restrictive pattern as well. And that's because uh, there's air trapping, so basically there's less air that can move in and out of the lungs. Another another factor to look at is the DLCO, which is the diffusing capacity of the lung for carbon monoxide. So when you kind of break down those walls in emphysema or whatever else, uh, the carbon monoxide, which is the stuff we breathe, of course, won't be able to move across the walls as well as it should. You can also use spirometry to track the progression of the disease. So the main figure you use to track that is FEV1, so prediction of FEV1. As that goes down, the disease is getting worse. Yeah, so not really useful on its own, but as a relative um, marker compared to previous FEV1s from the same patient, very useful. Mm -hmm. So chest x-ray, of course, is something that you commonly get in COPD patients. So if you're doing short cases for BPT exams, it's very common. What what are you seeing or what are you looking for? So you're looking for, I I guess the main thing that I look at is whether it looks like it's hyperinflated. So mm. increased lucency of the lung. So it's just very black. How weird is that? Does lucency mean white? Or but in light. Ra- yeah, yeah, it means light. But in radiology, increased lucency means increased blackness. I don't really understand that. Oh, medicine. I'm sure actually there's a really rational explanation. Probably. All our many listeners can comment on our website. <laughs> um, the other thing is a flattened diaphragm and squaring of the ribs. And just um, something that I've noticed a couple of, and I probably did this too when I, I was a medical student, but a few medical students have been describing x-rays to me in shoots before and pointed out flattened diaphragms and seen that as um, pulmonary effusions. So that's a, a common mistake that people mm. make. It's worth just Googling some pictures and having a look because they actually do look quite different. This is something I never ever look at myself, but rapidly tapering vascular shadow. I'll have to remember to look at that in the future. Basically, it, the vascular tree looks pruned. You might find some boule as well, which are kind of lucencies surrounded by hairline opacity, so kind of like little pneumothoraces. There's a there's a good page, as always, on Radiopedia that I'll put in the link dump for that. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of things so far. We've, we've gone through the, the definition, risk factors, um, and the presentation of COPD. Now, I guess um, one of the things we need to talk about is how do you measure the severity So the Lung Foundation of Australia has a um, severity rating system from mild, moderate to severe. So Dava, if you've got a patient who is breathless on walking around the supermarket and struggling to keep his house clean because he gets too breathless, um, he's coughing up a lot of sputum. Last winter, he had to go on a short course of oral corticosteroids. What, What would you rate his severity? So on feel, that just kind of sounds moderate to me because I've seen much worse and I've seen much better. Uh, But that actually fits with the Lung Foundation Australia definition as well. So someone with moderate COPD, their dyspnea is increasing, their disease has progressed, and they get breathless walking on level ground for a certain amount of time. And they have some limitation of their daily activities and have got regular cough and speed in production and are also having some exacerbations requiring... um, oral corticosteroids or antibiotics as well. In contrast that with mild, so a few symptoms, just a few chest infections and no impact on their daily activities and severe, and they're they're the people that are just sitting there using their accessory muscles lying in bed 
uh, they've got a chronic cough, they've got lots of exacerbations, producing a lot of sputum. And um, they correlate with certain FEV1s as well. So FEV1 predicted 60 to 80% is mild, 40 to 59% is moderate, and less than 40% is severe. In terms of differential, so I tend to get my blinkers on when I'm admitting people, especially when it's something really common like COPD. I tend to forget that there can be other things that present similarly. So asthma is an important one to think about. Um, and that's obviously completely reversible or mostly reversible with uh, bronchodilators. Bronchiectasis is one we mentioned before. So very similar, but they just produce a lot more sputum and they have these characteristic signet ring sign and other stuff you see. Check our um, bronchiectasis podcast um, on CT. And then constrictive bronchiolitis or bronchiolitis obliterans is another rare one. Think about that when someone's got inhalation injury, transplantation or rheumatological disease. And you can also see that on CT. And uh, diffuse pan bronchiolitis is another one as well. So that's seen in Asian non-smokers with chronic sinusitis. That's the kind of MCQ stem you'll get there. And they have some characteristic changes on chest X-ray. Of course, it might not be in the lung, it could be the heart. So heart failure is probably the main other differential you need to think of. And as we said before, very often in med, you'll just treat both. Mm. That's my contribution That's your there. Contribution. Mm. All right. Okay, management. So, as with anything else, there's non pharmacological and then other. Um, so, starting with non pharmacological, reducing those risk factors. And um, if you can get the patient to quit smoking, that is the single most clinically effective way of slowing the progression of the disease. Mm. Allied, allied health is useful as well. The mm. old cup and straw bubble trick, I think, helps quite a bit. And so pulmonary rehab. And there's often quite long involved programs as well. Mm. Then, of course, there's oxygen therapy. So this is something that comes into play a little bit later in the game. It is um, a, usually prescribed in patients who have a PAO2 of less than 55 or, if you're not going to do the ABG, SATs less than 88%. So this... Um, the way you sort of use these numbers is if patients had this kind of desaturation at rest, then they'd usually be on oxygen for 15 hours a day. And if they had those kind of desaturations during exercise or activity, then they might have intermittent oxygen just during activity. So the, the general thinking here is that some oxygen is better than none and continuous for 15 hours a day is better than some. Using more than 15 hours of oxygen a day doesn't confer any increased survival benefit compared to just 15 hours. So if people want to save the money and their inconvenience, 15 hours max is absolutely fine. Mm. Uh, and oxygen therapy actually improves survival. So it has symptomatic benefit, obviously, but people do live longer on it as well. And the initial trials excluded people with really low SATs, but then... Later, they found out that that excluded group actually had the most benefit from oxygen. So moving on to medications, which is kind of the mainstay, there's a good kind of COPD ladder as there is in uh, asthma, but there's some important differences to think about. The first step is very similar, so short-acting reliever medication. The difference is you can use atrovent or a SAMA, a short-acting muscarinic antagonist. So like ipratropium. Is the proper name for it. You can also use Ventolin Salbutamol, which is a short-acting beta agonist. Um, And just just before we get into all the different kinds, it's really important to check that 
patients are using their device properly. I think everyone's probably seen, heard those lecturers describe patients who spray their inhalers at their neck as if it's perfume or spray it into the air and walk through it. So make sure they're using it properly. Spaces really improve the um, sort of dissemination through the lungs. Mm. So the first one we said was the short-acting relievers. The second step is symptom relief. So you can either use a LAMA, a long-acting muscarinic antagonist like tiotropium, and or a long-acting beta agonist like salmeterol. So you might remember from your asthma education that that's not what you do in asthma. In asthma, you go for corticosteroids first, inhaled corticosteroids first, before you go for these long-acting receptor antagonists or agonists. And the reason for that in asthma is that the main part of the pathophysiology is constriction of the airway. So if you're saturating these uh, airways, when it comes that someone has an acute exacerbation, you might not have anything left in your armory to kind of open them up. But that's not the case in COPD because it's mostly just kind of inflammation and it's not very reversible at all. Yeah, so um, so we've said using the short-acting relievers and then we've talked about the symptom relief if um, this, the short-acting relievers aren't enough. The last step of this ladder is prevention of exacerbations. So that's where the inhaled corticosteroids come in. Usually when the FEV1 is less than 50% of predicted and... As well, there have been two or more exacerbations in the previous 12 months. Mm. I think part of the reason for this, from my own thinking, is that steroids are much more dangerous in this uh, group of patients that get COPD, older patients, than they are in younger patients. Even when they're inhaled, they can get things like cataracts, their sugars can go out of control, that you can get osteoporosis contributed to by inhaled corticosteroids. Yeah, they can be a bit messy. It's also worth mentioning that you can't use two types of muscarinic antagonists together. So even if one's a short-acting, one's long-acting. And so, so we've talked about the bronchodilators and the corticosteroids. There's also something that could be useful as a mucolytic agent, which is a little bit more unusual. Um, N-acetylcysteine, which you might have heard about in the management of a paracetamol overdose. You've seen this used in COPD, though, haven't you? I have. I've seen it used once. Mm. It was used by a registrar who just read a study, and all of the consultants (laughs) were staring at her wide-eyed, wondering what she was doing. But it it actually is backed up by a Cochrane meta-analysis that found that um, NAC, which you use as a... um, What's the word? You use it nebulized. Mm. Um, NAC actually reduces exacerbations and hospitalizations by up to 20%. And in the patient that I saw having a NAC um, nebulizer, she actually seemed like she got a lot better. Cool. Anecdotal evidence. There we go. (laughs) Top of the pyramid. So the last thing that I always forget about and forget to ask about in history, but it's really important, so vaccine, so flu vax, uh, influenza vaccine can um, reduce serious illness and death in COPD patients by 50%. That's huge. Mm. And uh, pneumococcal vaccine is also useful. So make sure they're up to date on that. So this is nothing that you'll be doing as a junior doctor, this kind of decision-making, but you can also use surgery to improve COPD. So basically it's lung volume reduction surgery because their lungs are so hyperinflated that they've got that kind of restrictive defect that we talked about before. And uh, it can also make respiratory muscles more effective if they're not trying to push against this huge balloon that's in the chest. I wish you could see Dawa's hand actions here. Only using carefully selected patients, of course, so that everything else has failed, but they still have an FEV1 and DLCO greater than 20% of predicted. And it has actually been shown to improve mortality. 
So last little uh, point here that we're going to go through exacerbations of COPD. So this is your common thing that you'll be admitting to hospital. What does it look like? Basically, they've got the same symptoms. You know, they've got a cough, worsening cough, worsening sputum, worsening dyspnea, that triad that we talked about before. But the key difference that you really need to say to sell the story to your registrar or your consultant is that their sputum has changed character. It's gone from that mucoid quality to kind of a more purulent quality, so it's yellow or it's green. And there's a lot more of it most Mm. of the time. You also want to see if there's any signs of infection, keeping in mind that exacerbations can also be non-infective, but most often there are signs of infection with fever or raised white cell count or CRP. Mm. Bugs that cause it, so strep pneumonia is very common, haemophilus influenza and moraxella cateralis. And if you live in China, pollution can do it as well. But I've also seen quite a few non-infective exacerbations Mm. um, on the gen med wards in Melbourne. In terms of uh, treatment of these exacerbations, so if it's a mild exacerbation, you just use those short-acting bronchodilators, so atrovent or salbutamol. If it's moderate, you do the same, but then maybe add some systemic corticosteroids. A typical dose that I've seen, and that's recommended by therapeutic guidelines, is uh, 25 milligrams daily. And uh, something I often see done is that they'll be on steroids for two weeks and then people carefully wean them down from 25 to 15 to 5 in case they get an Addisonian crisis. Not going to happen. So if they've only been it for two to three weeks, really? no need to wean. Yeah. Even at 25? Mm. Okay. And you'd also consider in a moderate exacerbation antibiotics if there's signs of infection. And if there's not signs of infection, antibiotics are not indicated. Another thing that just always gets chucked on and often unnecessarily, even when their CRP is 11 or something. So severe, all of the above, then you hospitalise them as well. You aim for um, O2 sats of greater than 90%. And would you CPAP or BiPAP in these patients? Um, I've mostly seen BiPAP used. Yeah, so that's because you're assisting them uh, ventilating. You're kind of assisting them breathing in, breathing out. That's how I think of it. It's not the continuous pressure of CPAP, which is more useful in pushing fluid out of their lungs. But, of course, these people are going to have heart failure as well. So maybe they should be on CPAP. And then you can use invasive ventilation, but if someone comes into hospital with COPD, which is a progressive disease and there's no way of really reversing it... Maybe you should be having a conversation about advanced care planning instead of doing that. Probably, yeah. Probably. Some useful discharge criteria in case you're going to be registrar anytime soon and need some help making that stressful decision. Is there saturations above 90% without oxygen? Are they using their beta agonists within every four hours? Can they walk across the room? And can they sleep at night? So four points there. All right, just to summarise now, some of you might remember from your GP education days at uni, a very useful little mnemonic, COPDX. So what does it stand for, Beck? So this is the Lung Foundation's useful little acronym. So C is for CONFIRM, so CONFIRM Diagnosis. How are you going to do that? Um, so, so you're going to do some formal spirometry. Mm. O stands for optimized function. So make sure they're on the right inhalers, basically. Make sure they've got some good physio, some good bubble pep. And then P. Prevent so, deterioration. So only really one way of doing that. You've got to get out a piece of paper, show them the graph of what happens if they continue smoking, and then show the flattening out that can happen at any stage of that line if they quit smoking. D, develop a support network and self-management plan. That's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. 
And X, um, they really could have probably used a different letter for this, no, but X cool. obviously stands for manage exacerbations mm. of COPD. So mm. we just talked about how you would do that. Mm. I think that's probably about it. So check uh, the site as always. We'll have a Quizlet there. There's quite a few little triads and things you need to rote learn to really be on top of COPD. So have a look at the flashcards and then also have a look at the link dump for some of that radiology and some of those links from the Lung Foundation that are really useful as well. Thank you. Thanks. Med Conversations.